Well, thank you very much for your welcome, and it's good to be reminded by Colin of that happy evening. Oh, it was an evening, yes. And I think Stan Wright was there, was he not? Do you remember? Stan Lee was there, yes, that's right. He got baptized as well. It just flashed through my memory. It was indeed a, 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 it was a wonderful evening. It was such a long time ago as well. But the Lord has been faithful all through those years to Colin and kept him in the narrow way. It is some time since I've been to see you, so thank you again for the welcome. Since I have been here last, um, I say I've retired, but you know what, these days um, it's becoming less and less common, isn't it? You know, you almost don't retire. But in Christian work and, and, in, and in the work of the Lord, there's no retirement, is there? Because there's always work to do in, in, in the service of the Lord. Now, I was converted just before a very big mission in Liverpool in 1966. That was the visit of uh, an, an evangelist who came from Manchester. His name has slipped my memory now, but he, he was a tremendous evangelist. And I was converted at the prayer meeting, the last prayer meeting they had before his mission began in the November of 1966. Going back in those days, oh, and by the way, the mission lasted a month, and it was at the centre of, Manch uh, of Liverpool, um, you know, right at the centre, and it was the last church, joint church mission in Liverpool where all the churches came together to plan that mission. It was the last. You might say, oh, yes, but Billy Graham came. Yes, he did. He came afterwards. But, that, but even the Billy Graham mission didn't have the same joint church support as that mission did. And I went almost every night because I was saved, became a Christian on the last prayer meeting before the mission started. So I was saved during a mission, as it were. And basically, that's been the story of my life. Because... Having been saved, I then went off to theological college, trained for the ministry. Then I was in the pastoral ministry with two pastorates, the longest being in Manchester for 12 years, and then stepped out into the work of an evangelist. And all through those years, the churches have engage were engaging in mission. They'd have mission weekends, mission weeks. And throughout my life, I've been involved in so many Christian missions where churches plan a week and they invite people from the neighborhoods and, you know, they have all kinds of meetings and I would be a guest speaker. And I've done that in many parts of the UK, also going into schools and doing assemblies and also taking lessons, um, RE lessons, as a guest teacher. And that's been my privilege all through those years. And it has been a tremendous, challenging time for me. It really has. And without the Lord's help, I, I don't think I could have ever done it. But you know, today is a different day. It's changed. Because there are no more missions like there used to be. 
It's not the same. Very rarely now do evangelists get invited to take a weekend or a week of mission. You might know something different, but I'm only going by my own experience. It's becoming more rare all the time. And churches that I knew so well uh, are in decline from years ago. They're now in decline. Many I could name, but I won't name, of course. The times have changed. The interest in, in the gospel today is nothing like it used to be. I used to take three open airs a week at the Pierhead in Liverpool. Listen to this. I'd bring my guitar with a couple of friends, and I was how old? 18. And I would start playing a, a chorus, and a crowd would gather around me in no time. And I would then put my guitar down and start speaking to those people. And there could be 30, 40, 50, 60 people would be listening to me share how I become a Christian and what it meant to be a Christian. If I tried to do that today, I'd be stood there talking to thin air. There'd be nobody listening. I remember when I used to witness to people, they'd say to me, many people would say to me, how can I become a Christian like you? Isn't that a wonderful thing for someone to say to you? When was the last time someone said it to you? Okay, you might say, oh, last week, well, praise God if it was. But I'm telling you now, it's a rare thing. And they say to me, how can I become a Christian like you? One of the first young people's meetings I took as a young evangelist, now I was about 19, and I went to a Methodist church in Old Rowan, that's in Merseyside, and um, there was about 40, 50 young people there. And I had a singer with me who sang with his guitar. He's from Holland. And then I got up and gave a message. I gave an appeal. Twelve young people stood up and said that they wanted to be Christians. We then stayed for another couple of hours while we counseled these 12 young people who became Christians. Today, when I think of the thought, it'd be hard to get 30 or 40 young people together. You might, you might do so bad here, because I see it's great to see so many young people here this morning. Those days, amazing. I used to do door-to-door -door visitation. And I knocked thousands of doors sharing the gospel. And you know something? Sometimes I couldn't get off a doorstep. I couldn't get off it. They'd just keep me, wanting to find out more, wanting to find out more. And I had the joy of even leading someone to the Lord Jesus on the doorstep. Would you like to become a Christian? Well, I think I would. Do you know how to become a Christian? No. I'll tell you how you do it. Prayed with them and they became a Christian on the doorstep and they went to the church the next Sunday and they kept going as well I wasn't just looking for quick decisions now if I go around the doors today what would happen I, can, I know what's going to happen 
Nobody's going to be in, number one. Or if they are, they're going to have a little sign on the door saying, no canvases and no religion. And, or they've got no time. What a change has come about. And so that's led me. But I still want to share the gospel. I still want to share the gospel. So that's led me in recent years to develop a new ministry. And this is why I'm telling you this. This is not the message, by the way. This is a bonus. (laughs) I've developed a new ministry called Precinct Ministries. And what do I do? I'll tell you what I do. I go out into the precinct where the people are and I simply offer people. I don't do any preaching in the open air. I simply offer people the word of God. New Testaments. And then I offer them a follow-up course if they want to find out more. I also promote um, a postal Sunday school so that if parents come by with children, I say, oh, would you like your children to have some Sunday school lessons in the post? And many take the leaflet off me. They can download them online, which is great. And so that's the ministry which I, which I am engaged in today. It's, it's a ministry in the precinct where the people are. They come by me and I offer them the booklets and the leaflets and I have some fabulous times Some people stop and challenge me. Some people stop and say they're pleased to see me. They're Christians. Uh, Some people stop and they want to argue with me about this and that. So that's my main ministry now. The second thing is I've developed, uh, Wendy and I have developed our interest in missionary work. And I spend some time in Spain uh, helping to reach Spanish people with the gospel. There's 5,000 Spanish towns with above 5,000 people that have got no gospel church. There are thousands of Spanish people uh, who, who know nothing about the gospel. And so I have a concern to reach them. So, yo aprendo español y hablo un poquito español. And last year I preached for the first time in Spanish. And the people were absolutely thrilled because they only preached for 10 minutes. (laughs) Afterwards, I apologized to them, lo siento. I apologized that I was so short. They said, no, no, don't apologize. No, that is fine. We love it. Because their pastor apparently really loves to preach and he can really preach well. So they said, no, that's great. You're welcome. You can come again. 10 minutes. But 10 minutes was a big challenge to me to speak in Spanish because I've been learning Spanish now for many, many years. Anyone here speak Spanish? Oh, that's good. You won't be able to understand how poor my Spanish is. Last week I was in a church and somebody said to me, um, Greg, Greg, come quickly. There's There's a couple in this church. They just started to come to us. They're from Spain. Oh, I thought, no. Come on, you, you can have a conversation with them. Oh, yeah, okay. So I goes over, and in Spanish, I greeted them, and I asked them how they were, and that. And I noticed they were looking very blank. And the problem is, if you're learning a language, by the way, I've been learning Spanish for 15 years, so hang on a second. So I have been learning it a while. But, and I was wondering, you see, if you're learning a language, you don't want to do the speaking because you understand more of what's said to you. So I understand a lot of Spanish, but I can't speak a lot. So I was longing for them to kind of 
get going and I'd be going, oh yeah, 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 I understand, I understand. But they were just blank. So I had to keep making the conversation and it was getting tough for me. And in the end, I gave up and just said, well, I'm really pleased to have met you today and I moved on. And then somebody whispered to me, oh, by the way, Greg, they're actually Romanians. <laughs> but they lived in Spanish for six months. I thought, no wonder their faces were blank when I was going on in Spanish. How is this going? And did you like it? And what's it, how are you enjoying yourself living in this country? And they didn't understand a word I was saying. So that's our work now. And uh, yeah, we've been to Rome as well. And um, because I have a son who lives in Italy, and on our last visit, we took a load of gospel literature. And we were given out literature in uh, Tuscany in a place called Sartiano. And that was a tremendous privilege. I've never seen people so keen to take gospel literature. And we went to Rome, and we went to the Vatican. I wasn't going to miss that. We got the bus from the hotel into the Vatican, into the big square there, packed with people. And I had my John's Gospels in Italian. And I went round with Wendy, and we gave out the Gospel of John in Italian, right under the nose of the Pope. Hallelujah. He wouldn't have minded, I'm sure, because it was, it, it was the word of God. So that's what we're doing now. We're still pressing on. We're still going out with the message. We're still reaching out to people. And our prayer is that the Lord will continue to use us. And his church will adapt and adjust to the day in which we live. And like Colin said, you will still faithfully serve the community in which you live. Right, okay, now we're going to start the message. Um, okay, we, we won't be too long. Now, this is a most wonderful chapter. My theme this morning is, the greatest is, not Muhammad Ali, no, the greatest is love. This is a most wonderful chapter, is it not, in, in the whole of the Bible. Probably Paul's most wonderful Writing. I mean, you've got his 14 letters, if you include Hebrews, I think. And yet of all his writings, surely this chapter is so absolutely, it's so beautiful, isn't it? Just listening to, you know, to our sisters reading it to us. And uh, it must be one of the most, if Psalm 23 is the most famous psalm, and is said to be the most well-known portion of the Bible in the UK, then I think in the New Testament, this must be one of the most famous and, and most well-known passages of the whole of the New Testament. Uh, some of us might remember when George Thomas, former Speaker of the House of Commons, yeah? Get your minds just working a little bit. Do you remember when he read this to the whole nation? Was it at the wedding of Princess Diana? Am I right? And he read it in his beautiful Welsh tone in the most beautiful... And there were endless, uh, thousands upon thousands of letters went into the BBC. And there were all kinds of testimonies of people who were moved in this nation and touched by the way he read uh, 1 Corinthians 13 on that day. I would only add to this... If only the true spirit of that passage had been in the marriage of Princess Diana and Charles. 
The nation was touched when that was read, and I remember him reading it myself. Is this just an ideal, a high ideal, which we can never achieve? I mean, we read it, and, you know, we think about it, but do we then say, oh, yeah, but hang on a minute. It's our reach. It's an aspiration which we might have, that this love may flood our lives and fill our hearts. Okay. Well, first of all, the first thing I want to do this morning is put it in its context. How many of us think of the context of this chapter? This is in one of Paul's letters to who? To the Corinthians. And there were many issues which he dealt with. Read God's word. Through my life, I've read God's word morning, noon, evening. Study God's word. Meditate on it. It's such a wonderful book. Study 1 Corinthians. Years ago, when I was at Bible college, we had a lecturer. He was a most wonderful lecturer. I have to say, I've never ever heard a teacher of Scripture like him since. His name was Yian Jones. Yes, I think he was from Wales. <laughs> and he had the most wonderful ministry because what he was able to do is, instead of taking a text or a chapter, he would take a book of Scripture. And he would open that book up and give you its teaching, its context, and you'd be mesmerized at how he did it. He would take the four Gospels for one of his messages. He'd pull out four chairs in a congregation and say, that's Matthew, that's Mark, that's Luke, that's... And right away you'd be absorbed because he gave you the big picture. And I always remember years ago, I was with a society called the Evangelization Society, and I think it was while I was with them I first started coming to this church. I was one of their evangelists in the UK, traveling all over the UK at that time. And uh, someone said to me, one of the evangelists, oh, you were at Swansea. Well, there was a teacher there of the word called Yian Jones. Yes, I said, oh, what? Yeah, he said, he once came to our conference for the evangelists. And he said, he took the book of Hebrews. And he said to the evangelists, now let's have our Bibles closed. And I want you just to think of each chapter of Hebrews. What with our Bibles closed? And he said, right, I want just as we go through each chapter, tell me something that's in each chapter. And then he went, chapter one. There was silence, just like there is now. <laughs> and then he said, oh, and, and our leader at that time, who was the director of the evangelists, a man called Marshall Shallus. Now, with a name like Marshall Shallus, You'd expect an exceptional sort of person, wouldn't you? And he was. He was a very fine evangelist. He always wore um, a navy blue top with, you know, those silver buttons. And he was immaculately dressed. And he was preaching in Liverpool one day. And um, somebody from the crowd shouted out to him, um, what was it? 
Someone shouted him, Go back to Burton's where you belong. <laughs> You'd have to be over 50 to get that joke. <laughs> Marshall Shallow said, Oh, chapter one, such and such. Then Mr. Jones said, Chapter two. Quiet from the evangelist. Then Marshall Shallow said, Oh, in chapter two, we have this. Chapter three. Marshall Shallow said, oh, in chapter 3 we have this. If I was to do the same with 1 Corinthians, how quiet would we be this morning? But I'm going to just quickly take you through it. Chapter 1, what do we have? Paul is reminded that at Corinth there are divisions there. He says, it's been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, I am of Christ, I am for remain, I am for out, I am for remain, I am for leave. <laughs> Divisions. Chapter 2. Chapter 2. There was pride there. Paul says, I, I, when I came to you, I didn't come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. No, but the Corinthians liked that. They liked eloquence. The Greek thinking, the Greek mindset. And Paul was rather plain in the way he spoke. Chapter 3. I could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk, not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it. And even now you're still not able. Immaturity. They weren't growing. Chapter 4. There was arrogance there. They felt somehow that Paul was, he was inferior to some of the new teachers that had come amongst them. Apollos, for example, who was so gifted and such an eloquent speaker. And so they seemed to look down on Paul. Chapter 5. Oh, this is a sad chapter. It's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles. Oh dear. Chapter 6. Need I go on? Dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints. Why in that assembly there was an unforgiving spirit so that if there was a difference, it would be, instead of sorted out by the elders and by the fellowship, they'd be off to the local solicitor and, the, and, and they'd be taking them before the court. And as you go through this book, as you go through it, you begin to see these things. Chapter 8, insensitivity. Some wouldn't eat the meat that was offered to idols. Others said, oh, there's nothing wrong with it. Look, look watch me. A bit like that um, 
politician, was it Gummer, who uh, fed his face with a great big, what was it, uh, McDonald's burger. There's nothing wrong with these burgers. <laughs> and, you know, and, and, and so the Christians say, oh, don't be so silly. It doesn't matter. There's no such thing as an idol. We, we, we're free from that. But yet, such a spirit of insensitivity towards those who perhaps had a weaker conscience. And you keep going through it. And you come even to chapter 12, where this church was blessed with spiritual gifts. We hear a lot of talk today about spiritual gifts. But here, there was a lot of pride about them. And they wanted the superior type gifts like healing uh, and prophecy and things like this. And so they became very proud of the gifts which they had. And you get to chapter 15 and you discover that there was people there who, who didn't even believe that there'd been a resurrection. And the Apostle Paul has to correct that teaching. Can you see where we're going here? the context of this letter. Now do you see why we've got chapter 13? Why? Yes, the reason is so clear. Because what was missing at the Corinthian church was God's love filling the people. What was missing was the expression of God's love. That wasn't there. And the context shows Paul came, he came to the real, the absolute real need that that church faced. But earnestly desired the best gifts, yes, and yet I show you a more excellent way. If we want to know the excellent way to be a thriving church, to be a church of the Lord Jesus Christ, to be a church that people can look on. Remember what they said in the early part of the Acts. See how these Christians what? See how these Christians love each other. In other words, whatever else the community was thinking, it was seeing a demonstration of the Christians loving each other. That ought to be so vital in the church. And so Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, and remember this, this book is an inspired book. In the Old Testament, the Lord Jesus is concealed. In the New Testament, he's revealed. All of God's word is necessary and vital for God's people. And here, Paul gives us this wonderful key for a church to thrive, for a church to grow. I had 12 years in a pastoral ministry. I don't think you could tell me anything about the difficulties which come in a church. I was playing golf. Yes, uh, I, I still managed to swing the clubs, Colin. I was playing golf with a friend last week, and he employs six people. And he was telling me how he was going to have to have a word with one of his staff. I don't know who he is, of course. Bit of a tricky situation, causing a few problems within the business, and it would have to be sorted out. And I said to him, I remember once when I had the, the oversight of 80 people, and they were all volunteers. And I had to try and keep them happy as the pastor. And I can tell you now it was no easy thing. 
like the treasurer who felt that the wine for the Lord's table, we could just as easily buy it from Quicksave. It would be a lot cheaper. So he went to the ladies who prepared the Lord's table and told them. And the lady came to me and said, I'm, I, I, I'm really, this is terrible, you know. I've just had, a, the treasurer's just been to tell me that the wine I buy is too dear and I should go, I should go to Quicksave and buy it. You know what, the way he's going on, he'll have me treading out the grapes next. <laughs> the sort of problems which you get, how you can cope and how you can deal with it. And somebody said to me once, and of course I was trying to sort out these problems. I had seven deacons, and we would meet and we would discuss, and then this would come up and that would come up, and then there'd be members' meetings, and this would come and that would come and somebody said to me once, Greg, what do you think the most important thing is in a church? Now, this was someone who had been a minister and who was sharing with me. I said, right. Um, I thought of a few things. And then he said, do you know what I think the most important thing for a church? Okay. He said, it's this, that the people love each other. Simple thing, isn't it? You know, it's such a simple thing. That's not to say that we don't deal with doctrinal issues. That's not to say that we don't sort out problems. That's not to say that we don't, you know, face up to issues which perhaps the Word of God addresses. No. Because when you read John later on, he wrote the Gospel, he wrote the last letters. He wrote the book of Revelation. He wrote the last things. But in his letters, there's two key things he says which are vital, and it's truth and love. Listen to me carefully. We don't want love in the church without truth. We don't want love that will overlook truth. It's not loving to neglect the teaching of the church of Jesus Christ. It's not loving just to let anybody do what they like. Now you probably know we had six children. Oh, they're, all, they're all grown now. And I believe we had a loving household. And to this day, all of my children, all of them we love them dearly, and they return that love to us. But I can tell you now, we are discipline in our house. There's no true love without discipline. And so I'm not suggesting that. So here it is. Here's the church with all its problems. And here's Paul saying, you know what? You need the love of God to saturate you. You need the love of God to fill you and to let that work through your life and to reach out to each other with this wonderful love. And so as I close, I'll just show you a quick outline of this. The opening verses, Paul shows us that love is indispensable. Can't do without it, friends. We are a failed church without this love in our midst. And the Bible says a house divided against itself cannot stand. 
And if there's no love in a relationship, it's not going to last. It's not going to last. That's a fact. You can have everything else you like in a church. You can have good organization. I'm sure you've got good organization. I should have known it wasn't Risley Independent Methodist Church that I was preaching at because they've never ever sent me an outline of the service. And I'm looking at this outline of the service and thought, they must have had a change at Risley IM. They must have had a change of leadership because, and I've had three emails, uh, and, you know, Elaine's really on the ball here with, you know, mobile number, all, everything's spot on. Jinx, I thought, this can't be. And yet I'm sat in Risley IM when they say, you're not preaching here this morning, Greg. Well, you know what? I had my suspicions about that, but I didn't say nothing to them. <laughs> I kept quiet. You can have, you, you could speak with the tongues of angels this morning. You could have someone with a wonderful gift of prophecy. They might have told us what the result was going to be of the recent referendum. Uh, you might have wonderful faith. You've got a beautiful building. You know, it's so beautiful. I'm sure it's wonderfully upkept and it, it's fantastic. Let me tell you something. If you're not loving each other as the people of God, it doesn't mean a thing. Not a single thing. It's nothing. You're nothing. That's what Paul says. Because this love is indispensable. And that's what our Lord Jesus himself said to the church at Ephesus. You might remember what he said. That's the first church he addressed in the book of Revelation. I know your works, your labor, your patience, you cannot bear those who are evil. Yes, they were doctrinally sound, friends. And you've tested those who say they're apostles and are not. You've found them liars, yeah. Elder, elders here, you need discernment. I hope you've got discernment, because you need it. You've persevered and have patience. You've labored for my name's sake. You've not become weary. Wow, this is a fantastic church at Ephesus, is it not? But then listen to what the Lord said. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You've left your first love. You don't love me like you used to. There's not that love in your midst. It's gone. It's not there. And so what does he say? Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen. Without this love, you're a fallen church. Repent and do the first works. Or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Let me tell you this. The church without love will ultimately close. It'll close. It's indispensable. Secondly, this love is indescribable. Oh, jinx, how can you, how can you describe this? Suffers long, kind, doesn't envy, doesn't parade itself, not puffed up. Doesn't need comment this, does it, surely? Doesn't behave rudely, doesn't seek its own, it's not easily provoked, thinks no evil. Doesn't rejoice in iniquity, but in the truth, remember that. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, never fails. Friends, this is in, indefinable this love which would fill our hearts because the fruit of the Spirit what's the first fruit of the Spirit? you got there love that's a fruit of the Spirit if the Holy Spirit's in our midst 
the first expression of it will be love flowing through the people of God. I want to challenge you to, uh, you know, I hate challenging people because, you know, I should challenge myself. You know, uh, and, and I do challenge myself. Meditate on each of these little phrases. Just, if you could get an opportunity this week, maybe, and ask yourself, or, and ask the Lord to fill you with a love like this. Lastly, this love is indestructible. Now, we won't always need faith, friends. Now, we walk by faith. Absolutely. Not by sight. Now, we see through a glass darkly. We, 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 we need faith now, and especially in the time in which we live, because we live in a, in a faithless time. Um, but, you know, we won't always need faith, because then we will know. We've been singing here our songs this morning, thanks to our group for leading us and their gift as musicians and singers, which has encouraged us today. But the songs themselves have pointed us to that wonderful day which is coming. We won't need faith then. Faith will finish. We won't need hope then. Now our lives are full of hope and anticipation and expectancy. We're not sure of certain things, but we, but we live in hope. Even with this recent decision which our country has made, uh, there's fear, yes, and there's hope as well. But then we won't need hope. But this love will be the atmosphere of eternity. Isn't that so wonderful? Because that's what the Apostle says. Now abides faith, hope, and love. These three. But the greatest of these is love. And in eternity, we will be in an atmosphere of pure love. Because what does the word of God say? God is what? And those who dwell with him will dwell in love. And the most wonderful thing is this, that we will have a nature then that will fully express that love, for we will have a new nature. And so as I close, I will just use Paul's own words. In chapter 14, verse 1, he says this, Pursue love. Interesting word, pursue. In the original Greek and in secular usage, it was used of someone who was pursuing um, bait or, or, you know, like an animal, um, fishing or anything. Someone who was focused on, on achieving. Pursue, it means to absolutely focus and Go for that. Make that your desire. Block everything else out in pursuit of knowing this love to fill our lives and to fill our church for his glory. Amen.